0: This is Attica Locke, and you're listening to Writer Types.
1: Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Bietner, and joining me as guest co-host is Erica Ruth Neubauer for a second time. Welcome back to the co-host seat, Erica.
2: Thank you, and thanks for having me back.
1: Sure. Well, you have a new book out, so we had to talk about that and celebrate it. Murder at Wedgefield Manor is the second Jane Wonderly book. Congratulations on that.
2: Thank you. It all feels kind of surreal, but it's happening. It's happening tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Is it, where's the level of excitement compared to the debut? Is it, uh, is it, it's not old news yet. You're only two books in. It's still just as exciting, almost as exciting.
2: It's almost as exciting. I think it still feels a little surreal just because everything is still virtual.
1: Yeah. You haven't been able to go make those in-person bookstore appearances and meet the adoring fans mobbing you for autographs.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Pretty soon it's going to be all, you know, big hats and huge sunglasses. So no one sees me when I leave the house.
1: (laughs) Well, this one takes Jane back to England in 1926. And I have to assume if you're writing about that era, there's a certain part of you that feels like you would love to have lived in that time period, or are you just as satisfied to kind of visit in your mind now and then?
2: Um, I think, I don't think I would have wanted to live during that. I would love to visit it briefly, hang out there for a couple of days and then return. I think um I think it's a really interesting time period because of some of the social structures that were changing and that women were pushing against the strictures that that were placed you know on them but I I'm a modern lady I would have had a really really hard time in the 20s so <laughs>
1: because of the social things or the, or the conveniences of, uh, you know, getting around in your car and having the internet at your fingertips all the time. I think
2: the social, I think mostly the social things and my smart mouth I think would have gotten a uh-huh. deal of trouble.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can, uh, I've spent time with you. Yeah. I can attest to that. You... <laughs> it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that you've lived with Jane for a while, Is she changing on you in uh, maybe unexpected ways uh, from when you first uh, conceived of her?
2: I think she's come a lot further as a character than I I guess I ever had anticipated. And now she's actually starting to feel like an old friend. So book three is turned in and um, I'm hoping to start on book four soon. I'm really excited about it because they are starting to feel like characters that I, I really know well and I'm excited to spend time with. Well, that's cool. Yeah,
1: it is, is getting back into it to uh, get easier and easier with each subsequent sequel.
2: Yeah, I have found that it is. I have found that her voice comes much, much more easily. And I've sat down and tried to write other things that that didn't come nearly as easily. So Jane, Jane really flows for me.
1: Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. well, they, that's how you know you've hit on something that could potentially be a long running series is when they uh, they do most of the work for you. Right, I gotta do that. Why? Why am I so dumb? And I keep, I keep starting over from scratch every time.
2: You doing standalones, man.
1: Jeez. Well, did you learn any lessons uh, through book one that you have brought into this uh, second book? Things to do, maybe things not to do.
2: No. I really learned the hard way. I will tell you that I really have to run my head against a wall a lot of times before I pick up on stuff. So I, I have not learned anything yet.
3: Well, that might change when I'm
2: out in the real world and doing like real world in-person events.
1: Right. Okay. Well, you know, hey, book four is a great time to start learning something.
2: Right? I feel like that's true. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, your co-hosting duties uh, today are going to be very easy because I've already done the interviews already. Look at you. All you got to do is sit there and and be charming. And and this is exciting because you have no idea who I talk to either.
2: I don't. Who did you talk to?
1: (laughs) Well, my first conversation uh, was with author Elle Marr. Her first book, The Missing Sister, was a huge hit. And now her follow-up, Lies We Bury, is poised to be huge again. Ooh. So uh, a title like Lies We Bury, I mean, it, 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 crime and mystery writers, we love lies. We love people who are liars, and, it, small yeah. lies and big. But, I mean, in your day-to-day life, small little lies are okay, right?
2: I mean, I feel like a little white light if, to save someone's feelings are, is okay. Yeah. Right? I, I think so.
1: It's, it, I we need them. And I think the social contract only sticks together when we all acknowledge that, you know, we're all doing it a little bit.
2: Totally agree. We just can't,
1: you can't let them get out of hand. Right. L- lie about whether or not you really want to go to that dinner party, but not about, did you kill that guy?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I think there's a spectrum and those are on different ends.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today on Writer Types. Uh, Your latest novel, Lies We Bury, is uh, hot off the presses. Do you think there's a chance you're gonna lie to me today?
0: (laughs) I hope very minimally, at least. I hope you won't be able to tell if that's the case.
1: Aha, that's the secret, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here on Writer Types.
1: All right. Well, Lies We Berry is your second novel after The Missing Sister, uh, which was a huge hit. Uh, so I've, having never had a huge hit before, I got I to know, was there a lot of pressure to follow up?
0: <laughs> that's, that's very kind of you. Um, none more so than the pressure I put on myself. Uh, right. I've been very lucky in that my publisher has been super supportive the whole way. So yeah, I think all the pressure has been in my head personally.
1: Is that that's? It seems like a typical writer thing. Is we we do it to ourselves, right. right? The torture of the writing process is mostly self-imposed.
0: Absolutely, yes. And you would definitely know about that. You're an extremely prolific writer.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I keep slinging them out there, hoping for one to break through. So, you know, fingers crossed.
0: I admire that definitely. <laughs> I'm only in on my second, so I hope to to live up to um, the dozens that you have now.
1: <laughs> well, uh so this novel runs in two timelines and i i did that once and it became the most complicated plot that i ever had to do i had i had note cards taped to the wall and it, it was yes. a lot of rethinking and restructuring and stuff did the structure of this novel give you any trouble along the way uh
0: i mean i I'm sure it did. <laughs> I know it's the, it,
1: now you blocked it out? Exactly, <laughs> right. Trauma. I've been past
0: it, so I've completely blocked out that part of my life. It was a, a few months back. It was last year that I was writing it or editing it um, and writing it. So yes, I definitely had a whiteboard, but I don't think I actually used it. I had no cards, but I don't think I used those either. Ultimately, I really rely on Excel spreadsheets mm-hmm. and <laughs> uh, aggressive beta readers who <laughs> will tell me oh, okay. things don't make sense. They're the best kind.
1: Yeah, that's good. You have a, you have a, a reliable, stable of people that you can uh, trust to tell you yes. when something doesn't work.
0: <laughs> yes, and the very best. Um, most importantly, my husband, who is my first reader, he's the he's the first person that reads my manuscripts when they're being drafted, and he will tell me. <laughs> he's very good at that. Very incisive.
1: Uh, I say, I'm so jealous. I, I, frequent listeners of this show know that I say all the time that my wife will not read any of my books.
0: Oh, she waits for the finished copy.
1: No, no, she won't read them <laughs> ever.
0: Oh, okay. She, she, right. she
1: read, she read like one and a half early on and she was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that's good enough. I, I, I understand.
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to sleep next to you at night.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Got it is, there, is there, your husband ever a uh, question like hmm uh, l where did this come from <laughs>
0: um not not with the missing sister or lies we buried but the third book that I'm working on right now he he's definitely looked at me from he's given me a side eye Uh-oh. A, a glance from the side yeah
1: is there is there a, a, a bad husband in there
0: <laughs> oh no there <laughs> there isn't but um I don't want to say too much because I'm still editing but there's a, a an antagonist who is particularly He's disturbed. I'll say that.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, to mm,
0: pique your wow. interest, <laughs> he's
1: disturbed, <laughs> and he just happens to have the same name as your husband.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward dinner conversations there.
1: Yeah. Well, lies we bury is a, a darker view of Portland than I think that I've read before. Uh, but then again, my, most of my opinion of Portland comes from Portlandia, so it's which is it's great. A, which is yeah. so
0: it's so accurate in some funny, oddball ways too.
1: Okay. Yeah. But it would, is this accurate to the dark side that maybe we don't hear about as often?
0: I wrote Lies We Bury as a kind of covert love letter to Portland. So there are definitely darker themes to it and definitely darker areas of the city that I've tried to highlight, specifically the Portland-Shanghai tunnels. However, I also tried to imbue a lot of levity and um, some of the the humor that I think Portland has that Portlanders appreciate. There are a lot of inside jokes that I have tried to scatter around.
1: Yeah. And people should know, I mean, these Shanghai tunnels, those, these are a real place. This is not something you invented. This is, this is something you found out it really exists under your feet.
0: Absolutely. I went down into the Portland Shanghai Tunnels a few years back before I, I wrote Lies We Bury, uh, but they exist below Portland's Chinatown and in Portland's general downtown area. They they have a lot of really interesting history. There's, there's a lot of vice that went on and then a lot less than what people think but they were on a show about ghosts and the most haunted places in america oh um so it depends on who you ask but their their history is definitely interesting and i try to include some of that in lives we bury
1: and when you went down there, were you in the process of researching for Lies We Berry, or you went down there and the story, you discovered the story underneath there as you were walking the tunnels?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. I didn't had no idea that I was going to be writing Lies We Bury* at the time. It was just later on that I was searching for my second book's idea or their, the setting.
1: Well, the most famous place with catacombs, as we all know, is is Paris in France, also where you lived. <laughs> I, I feel like the French are harder to shock maybe with, with dark stories. They're, they're, they're more maybe used to it. Is, do you think that's true or is that just my American perception?
0: Uh, I think the French have you know such an extensive history behind them with all kinds of crazy stuff that's occurred, you know, stranger than fiction stuff. So yeah, yeah I think their, their level of tolerance for weird dark stuff is definitely high. In, in thinking about the common themes between The Missing Sister and Lies We bury, i.e. underground tunnels, I also realized I've been to the Roman catacombs as well.
1: Oh.
0: I have this strange, I guess, <laughs> fascination with underground tunnels, although I dislike them. I dislike being there in the moment. It's a very uncomfortable oh. feeling.
1: You're not out spelunking on the weekends? <laughs>
0: no, I'm not cave dwelling. No, definitely not. <laughs>
1: Well, I I recently read uh, the novel Frantic uh, that the the film Elevator to the Gallows was based on. I've read some Jean Patrick Manchette and uh, recently a French author named Johanna Gustafson. But I I feel like I haven't read a whole lot of French authors. When when you were there, were you soaking in French crime fiction and and because they do have a rich history that that I'm sure would probably filter into your work.
0: Absolutely, I um, had recommendations from French friends, so I didn't read a lot of. Uh, modern french crime authors but i did a fair amount of uh i read through a fair amount of novels written in like the 30s and 40s so a lot more like hmm. very gumshoe police procedural um novels george simenon
1: interested. books and stuff
0: yes and and guy mondaine his was the first book i read in french actually that was like novel length
1: uh, are there any uh, french like crime shows or movies that, that i should be aware of i i, I love i love a good uh, subtitle <laughs> <laughs>
0: um yeah don't we all there's a, a show called lupin on netflix right now
3: oh i've is, i've heard that's good yeah, yeah
0: getting a lot of great reviews um omar c is fantastic in it He's so um good. he is so great he was in the um movie the untouchables
1: yes oh, and it's so good
0: but it's really fun it's kind of like The series itself is really fun. It's like viewing a movie in 50 minutes. Nice. Yeah.
1: All right. Adding that to the list. Now, I know it's important to you to represent characters of of mixed race or Asian heritage. Both my daughters were born in China, and it does seem much easier for them to see characters who, who look like them these days as opposed to like when I was growing up have have we really come a long way or is there just so much longer to go that it doesn't feel like progress yet?
3: <laughs>
0: I mean, that's a great question. And of course, that's one that I think everyone is allowed to individually answer for themselves. There has been so much progress in the last couple of years. I've been so pleased to see it because to your point, I grew up with Margaret Cho <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, on the show American Girl. She was it in terms of what I saw on TV, aside from Jackie Chan. And, you know, in terms of publishing, there was Amy Tan and Maxine Hong Kingston and not a ton of other Asian or AAPI authors when I was a kid. So I have been so pleased with the books that are being published nowadays, but the book Eyes That Kiss at the Corners is a a kid's book that really emphasizes the beauty in Asian beauty. Mm. Um, And I would have just loved to have seen that growing up. That's so (laughs) neat that your kids um, have... A wider array of choices to pull from nowadays. I think we're yeah. getting there. To answer your question,
1: all right. Well, that's good. Well, thank you for uh, contributing to that. These are these are books that uh, I'm going to pass on to my girls when uh, when they're a little bit older. <laughs>
0: Wait till eleven at least.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, my got my fourteen year old. She digs into stuff that's so. I mean, she tore through you know the Hunger Games and all these. Oh, yeah like so she went through a real serious dystopian phase in her reading where <laughs> she's that's like, dad, she's my kind of reader. Yeah. She was like, it, it, someone got decapitated, dad. I had to look up what that word meant. I was like, oh
0: I boy. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, that is. That's impressive. Definitely an adult reading level. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely, looking back, I, I think I read, um, I didn't read Stephen King first. I first read Richard Bachman,
3: uh-huh.
0: his uh, Alter Ego. And I read that when I was 11. Oh wow! <laughs> Speaking of precocious readers,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, I can I still can't get either my either of my girls to read my books.
0: They'll get there. They're just working <laughs> up to it. They got to build up to your work.
1: And and they roll their eyes when I try to play them my old punk rock bands. And like, hey, Dad used to be cool.
0: They'll, I mean, pretty soon they'll have their own kids, and then uh, yeah. and then they'll be able to look back and tell their kids that they were cool once too. They read, you know, Hunger Games*.
1: There you go. (laughs) My next guest, Erica, is Nadine Matheson. Now, I don't expect you to know her because she is a debut author. She's a London based criminal defense attorney turned novelist, and her debut is called The Jigsaw Man. This is a book about a copycat serial killer out there and the detective inspector who was trying to stop him. It's getting rave reviews. It was uh, it was very suspenseful and and, uh, I think a really fun read. She's going to do well in this side of the pond as they say, (laughs) but now you have uh, you're a wily veteran. Now, have you been giving advice to debut authors uh, all over the place?
2: uh yeah because i i run into them on the street often no i mean if they if um i would be happy to to share advice but so far no one has solicited me for any that sounds like a wonderful book though totally up my alley
1: yeah it's good you should check it out and if anyone's listening out there erica's uh, her dms are open for any <laughs> questions you have Hit
2: me up i have terrible advice to share with everyone
1: <laughs> can you give us some terrible advice right now <laughs>
2: just just life <laughs> advice my head. you yeah. could be like me and just completely forget that you're launching a book and co- completely forget to put it on social media
1: hmm. that's yeah some terrible advice <laughs> oh shoot is it tuesday my my oh, book is out today yeah, i completely I'm
2: doing, a thing. I'm doing a thing next week
1: <laughs> wow yeah all right don't take erica's advice
2: it's Fine. it's fine
1: you will learn. I'm, I'm telling you. Most he talked to talked to Sarah Perezki. She didn't get it until book four. She
2: was right. she was she
1: was clueless. Book,
2: four. book four is gonna be my sweet spot.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. well, we're gonna jump right in and uh, and get on. Oh, look at her! Okay. She's drinking tea. I know
4: it's that time. <laughs> it might be so, it might be something stronger later though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought tea time was four o'clock.
4: Technically. Clean, but we don't really stick to time okay like, that's not like,
1: any I'm, I'm i'm thinking too downton abbey aren't
4: i it's so downton abbey
1: <laughs> this is it's this is a modern london woman here she can drink modern, tea whenever she damn well pleases we drink tea
4: whenever we want sometimes
1: we don't drink tea sometimes it's very vodka <laughs> well nadine let's talk about the jigsaw man your debut yeah. novel so congratulations on that a huge achievement uh there is a copycat serial killer at the center of this book, and we meet D.I. Angelica Henley. This is a small thing to start with, yes. but I want to know, is the serial crimes unit, is that a real thing, or is that something you made up?
4: No, it's not a real thing. I made it up completely. Oh. <laughs> Writers,
1: <laughs> we're always making stuff up.
4: <laughs> but I know. I wish it was a real thing, and I'm surprised like we don't actually have a serial crimes unit in the UK.
1: Maybe they'll be inspired. Now, someone will pick up this book and say, hey, why didn't we think of that?
4: I want it named after me, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, you are a criminal defense attorney in your in your non-writing life. Uh, So, I mean, I would think that you would want to get away from all that darkness of your day job and write, (laughs) uh, you know, a, a romantic comedy or something. But you you jumped in with both feet and went full dark.
4: I did. I thought I, I did think at one point, you know, just moving completely away from crime, as you said, maybe being sci-fi or something, but no, apparently the darkness calls me, so I can't stay away <laughs> from it.
1: <laughs> I mean, is it the kind of thing where you you're so steeped in it that you get a little uh, numb to it, or is it's truly where you're you find the the most compelling stories?
4: I think it's it's probably where I find the most compelling stories. I mean, as an attorney, I said I'm used to compartmentalizing my work life from my personal life, so I don't take it home with me. But all in all, every case, I always said you can have 20 people charged with the same offence, but every single person's story will be completely different, and it's right. that aspect of it that's always intrigued me and pulled me into writing crime.
1: Yeah, and and everyone's story is different because uh, probably somebody's lying, right?
4: (laughs) Maybe someone's lying. Actually, no, definitely someone's lying. Not my clients. My clients would never lie to me. Oh, of course not. Maybe on the other side.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm certainly hoping that nothing in this book is taken from any of your real life cases.
4: No, I wish... It sounds a really strange thing to say. I wish I'd had the experience of representing a serial killer, but I've never represented a ser- <laughs> No, it sounds strange. What? I, <laughs> I think you'll only find criminal defence attorneys will be the only ones who'll ever say this. But um, no, it's never happened in real life. I've represented murderers before, but not anyone who's committed serial offences like the characters in my book.
1: Wow. And, and I mean... Uh, well, geez, so many follow-up questions on that. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's got to be a slippery slope, though, for somebody in your line of work that you can't... I mean, you can't just lift someone's life and put it on the page. You have to be respectful of their privacy and everything. But And yet there's inspiration all around you for crime novels every day. Yeah,
4: exactly. I mean, I would never... I mean, it would be so disrespectful to take my own client's story or take all the details of one particular case and include it in a story. But uh, I said, I'm inspired by all the of all the clients I've represented over what, the course of 16 years. And I've lost count on the amount of cases that I've worked on. And there's been unusual aspects of a particular case. Like I had one client who was always using um, fake identity. So I didn't use the whole case, but a certain aspect of their story or of their character. It's like I, it would be wrong like not to use it, but yeah. not to use them, not to use them in entirety. I, couldn't, I wouldn't do that.
1: Right. Well, uh, while you were writing the Jigsaw Man, I mean, did you take pleasure in crafting a crime story that you could make go entirely where you wanted it to go, instead of being at the mercy of you know real life clients and stories and 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 the justice system steering you where you need to go?
4: Yeah, definitely. Because there's no restraints on me. So normally, in my in in my professional life, I'm dealing with the prosecution or I'm dealing with the police. Not providing me with all the information I'm asking for, or sometimes I always say you have two types of clients. You have the type of client who tells you everything, and you can't shut them up, and you have the other client who just they remain quiet. They don't say anything, and it's like pulling teeth. But when I was writing the Jigsaw man, I had no restraint, so I can leapfrog over all those hurdles that I'll probably in, um, incur in, in my professional life. So I could go wherever the story took me, and I could take I could go darker than probably the things I would have experienced in my professional life also.
1: Wow, yeah, and that's the thing that I love about writing is that level of control, you know, my my job, I'm a television editor, so I do something very creative and I hand it off to people and then I get notes about how I did it wrong and how I should change it. (laughs) So my whole life is just is doing something and then chipping away at it in these tiny yeah. ways and I, I you feel like you don't have any control and it's got to feel somewhat similar for
4: for you definitely it can feel like you're constantly meeting obstacles no matter how you can put 100 percent into representing your client and doing the best for your client investigating all the scenarios that they give you but then you meet obstacles and sometimes those obstacles can they can be the prosecution or they could be the judge himself when I'm standing up in court and he's the judge is being in absolute pain and not giving me what I want or just making things harder <laughs> and for me but when I'm writing I can you can I can kind of get my revenge oh <laughs> there I you
1: mean. go <laughs> can I tell you you are not the first author who has cited revenge as a motivating factor to really? writing a book <laughs> I think it's in it's in a lot of us
4: it is there's this little like I can remember, you know, a judge just being so rude to me unnecessarily. And I was just thinking, oh, I need to get you back some way. But, oh, I found a perfect way to get you back. <laughs> <in books
1: too." laughs> you won the City University Crime Writing Competition, which is very impressive. Was that for this book or was that for a different piece?
4: It actually, winning the competition led up to the book because the competition win, it was a I have this habit of jumping into things without thinking about it and um, I saw this competition on Twitter and I didn't realise that the actual prize was to basically get a bursary, so it's a discount of a creative writing masters and I teach as well, in addition to um, practicing law, so I teach in a law school. And then the thought of going back to school to study on a creative writing masters, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to teach. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be taught. I don't want to be back doing homework.
3: Right. And
4: then um, it turns out I won the competition. So when I won the competition, I was like, Oh, God, okay, now I have to go and do the creative writing masters. And to complete the course, you had to write the novel complete a whole novel. And that novel was the jigsaw man.
1: Wow, that's very cool. Now, I mean, now that you're into presumably your, your next book, or maybe you've already got one in the can, was it, it was the structure of the class actually a it turned out to be a good motivating thing and now you're on your own. Do you have the same discipline in writing and getting your page count every day?
4: Um, I try to be disciplined. I think the, I finished the first draft of book two, so I've just got my editor's notes back. I actually got them back yesterday. But I did have a first the first month of writing book two. I was like, how am I going to do this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> How did I do this the first time? But... After the first month, I just got myself back into my routine, and I, I have like a, I try and give myself a minimum word count of like 1,600 words a day. Oh, and some wow. days I'm yeah, some days I meet it, some days I surpass it, some days it's so hard. If I got 250 words down, you're like, well, that's all you're gonna get out of me. It's yeah. <laughs> 250 <laughs> words more than I had yesterday. <laughs>
1: <That's>... <laughs> Time to switch from tea to vodka.
4: Exactly. time (laughs) Definitely double vodkas.
1: (laughs) Do you think, uh, I mean, does the UK have any sort of different appetite for a kind of crime book than we do in the United States, do you think? Or is is writing so universal now that uh, there's not much difference between what is an American crime novel or a British crime
4: novel? there's much difference now because we have so much access to everything it's not just yeah. books and i mean if you look at netflix i mean the us and canada Canada can have so much access to um crime shows so when they if they do pick up a book that's similar it doesn't seem so strange yeah. to them so in that in that respect i don't think there's much difference um especially not now when i was growing up definitely I remember being like 14, 15, picking up an American crime book and thinking, we don't have anything like this. <laughs> like, what is this world?
1: This is not Agatha Christie. <laughs> it's
4: definitely not Agatha Christie. is not like Inspector Morse. <laughs> I don't know this. It's is so cool.
1: I mean, sometimes it's just the experience of it and, and, and getting used to different rhythms. My wife, mm-hmm. about a year ago, went through a big run where she was watching nothing but British crime TV series. And she was like shes like, "Oh my God, I, I've, I watched all of Broadchurch and then all of mm. you know all, all these different things. And it was funny to see her at the beginning of it. I think about half of the dialogue went by her ears and she didn't <laughs> grasp onto what they were saying. But then by like her fourth or fifth series, I was like, you like, that guy is seriously Northern. You understand what he's saying? <laughs> what he's saying? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I got it.
4: <laughs> she can say, she can actually say what part of England the character yeah. comes from. But it's so funny. I think, especially I said years ago when there wasn't so much access to shows and Everyone, I remember going to the States, going to New York City, my my family, and they thought we either spoke very posh, like Downton Abbey, or it was an extreme version of Dick Van Dyke, (laughs) very (laughs) posh, there was no in between.
1: Well, as an attorney, do you think, now that this book is out there... Are you going to get all the serial killers who get arrested? Are they going to be asking for you to represent them? Because they're thinking like, okay, she gets me. She understands.
4: <laughs> she understands me. We can work together. Um, maybe I've had old clients um, email me out of the blue. asking them if are really? in the book. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you're not in the book. I wouldn't do that to you. You're definitely not. And they're upset that they're not in the book. But, oh, um, gee. <laughs> Um, but um, it'll be interesting to see if I do get any um, alleged serial killers. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, yes. Yeah, alleged, alleged.
1: Oh Well, I, I, good luck, I guess.
4: Well, everyone deserves to be represented. That's the best I can do. All
1: right, Erica, my final guest is none other than Jacqueline Winspear. Ooh, That's the proper response. I figured you might be excited about this because Jacqueline's famous character, Maisie Dobbs, I personally think she would be good friends with Jane Wonderly.
2: Oh, I think, absolutely. I think that's the case. I think they um, definitely like a similar spirit, both those characters.
1: Yeah, they would go out on the streets of London and with their sass mouth and their attitudes,
2: (laughs) have a couple of cocktails. That's right.
1: Yeah, you know, well, the latest Maisie Dobbs adventure is *The Consequences of Fear*, and it brings the action right up to World War II. Jacqueline was a pleasure to talk to, and uh, after talking to her, I also think that not only would your characters be good friends, but you two would also have to be good friends. You would have a good time hanging out.
2: Oh, that's delightful! I would, I would be delighted to meet Jacqueline Winspear. Um, I think she's a wonderful author, and I really enjoy her series.
1: Well, there you go, Jackie. Yeah. Eric's uh, DMs are open for you too.
2: Exactly, <laughs> I'm here. I'm ready.
1: <laughs> what What advice could you give her?
2: Oh my goodness, I have no advice to give to give her. She could send some advice my way.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you might need some. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jacqueline Winspear, welcome to Writer Types. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the occasion of your 16th. Maisie Dobbs' novel, The Consequences of Fear, congratulations on that.
3: Well, thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me. Um, It's really lovely to be here.
1: Now, I'm more of of a hard-boiled guy when it comes to both what I read and what I write, but I have a soft spot for Maisie Dobbs, and I I don't think that's too much of a stretch uh, out of my normal Mm -mm. reading routine Now, you don't have to necessarily sell your regular readers on the new book. They're waiting for the next adventure with anticipation. So I want to know what would your pitch be to to hard-boiled fans like me who think that maybe Maisie's going to be a little too lightweight for them because I, I'm of the opinion that Maisie really has kind of a hard-boiled heart. I mean, there's some, there's some dark <laughs> stuff that happens in these books.
3: Well, yeah. And pe- unfortunately, here's the thing. People think that when you've got a a, ca- a female character who's operating in the 20s and 30s and so on, and Maisie is now into the 1940s, the Second World War, they think you've got a flapper. And, <laughs> right. you know, and, and in fact, you don't have a flapper. I mean, Maisie is... A woman who at a very young age, a very impressionable age, 17 years old, saw death of the most terrible kind that changed her life when she was um, a nurse in the battlefields of the Somme. And actually, funnily enough, I, I think I can do no better than to, to quote Lee Child, who's actually a great fan of the Maisie Dobbs series. And I had the great honor of interviewing him once, and he actually kind of turned it the other way around a bit. But he said to me, he said, Your books have more violence in them than mine. He right. said because your he said, because war is much more violent than the kind of violence that I have. He said it might be off stage But it's there. So I think, you know, for a hard-boiled fan, you know, there's often people that are wounded by having seen Death of a Most Terrible Kind. The fact that it's a woman protagonist doesn't mean to say that she hasn't seen some horrible things. And now we're into the Second World War, and we're going through... You know, in The American Agent, it was going through the blitz. And, you know, I I was actually using a couple of scenes that were devastating that were described to me by my family, by my aunts and by my oh, mother. Wow. So, you know, let's think about what hard-boiled really means and, you know, what it is to create something that has darkness but also light because yeah. you can't have one without the other. You know, uh, it, it's as easy as even Raymond, Raymond Chandler, you know, I mean, with all that snappy wit, you know. Right. Uh, what is the darkness? Uh, what is the darkness worth if you cannot have light? And what is the light worth if you cannot have its reflection? You know.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, well, I agree.
3: So that's how we weave a story. So that wasn't, yeah. uh, that wasn't exactly a quick elevator pitch, but it was there. Well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think you, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. And, and certainly, I mean, in, in the new one, I mean, this one starts off with an attack. A, a you know, young boy witnesses uh, two men fighting. And uh, right off, I mean, you don't shy away. You describe the knife going in. I mean, it's, you, you go there.
3: Uh, yes, um, because I'm, I'm inside the boy's head. And what is terrifying to that boy, all I could think of are the terrible things he must have seen as a boy messenger. And there were boy messengers. My dad did that job when he was 12 wow. years old. So that's how I, that inspiration came to me. And so, you know, you start from a place of thinking, you know, what terrible things it is, what a terrible thing it is at a young age to see death of that kind. And what does that do to you? And then, you know, it wasn't so much of a skip and a jump to think, well, what if a boy sees something, a a different kind of death altogether? Yeah. You know, amid all that.
1: I, you we should explain all this to my fourteen year old uh, who who thinks her life is so hard
3: <laughs> well, isn't I, you know and that's the thing you know it, I mean these days you know if you're fourteen you're you're deprived if you if you can't go around the mall on a Saturday but yeah. you know my 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 mom left school at fourteen um so did almost every member of my you know her her generation of the family that's yeah, yeah. when they left school. My dad left school at fourteen and in fact the job he did. Inspired to die, but once it's really funny. I mean, I just where you go with your in your head, thinking what what must happen to people. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, we talked a little bit about the about the era in which these stories are, are written. I mean, you started with Maisie in the years between the wars, and now yes. you have brought her right up now into the Blitz, and then as you said, the, the new one, the consequences of fear, of the year is nineteen forty one. Is it a challenge not to start to let the war overshadow the central mystery of these books? Because it is, I mean, it looms large over everything in society at that time.
3: It sure does. And, you know, I think there's a balance. And the the way I see the mystery, the mystery is, uh, you know, that archetypal journey through chaos to resolution and, and war is part of the chaos. And, and that is the part that isn't quite resolved because it's going on. So I just think there has to be a balance. Um, but of course, in the consequences of fear, you know, part of the mystery is is, is what is happening is due to a state of war. So yeah. it's, you know, I, I I don't know that I sit down and, Uh, Well, I don't sit down and plan. This is the way I'm going to make the balance. It's more a a question of uh, organically feeling my way along. And sometimes there is not a balance. Sometimes the war really does. I mean, it's a major part of the story.
1: Well, Maisie could be seen as a a bit of a modern woman living in older times, but I wonder, are, are we mistaken about that? I mean, women being as independent and kind of forward-thinking as Maisie, I think were more common in that era than maybe we realize now with this distance yeah. from it.
3: Is yeah, right? we, we, we tend to think of, of uh, well, it's, she has that contemporary sort of uh, independence and so on. But in fact, there was the, what was known as then the w- modern woman began to emerge at the end of the 1800s. And then you went mm. into the suffrage movement and so on, which actually in Britain, was a very it was consider, they were considered a terrorist movement oh, and wow. in america the the politicians feared that the suffragists in america would become as vehement and as violent as the suffragists became in britain because they did they just were felt that that they were really pushed to the extreme however the first world war had an extraordinary effect on the lives of women now of course there were women for whom a lot of things did not change but if you can imagine you're going into the First World War, women were as constricted as their clothing. You know, they wore corsets and, you know, they they expected their lives to be very much like their mothers and grandmothers before them. Along comes that war. And in Britain, and this was not quite the same in the United States because war didn't happen on the soil here. Yeah. But, you know, it totally changed the lives of women, because women went into war work in such significant numbers. Um, I think before the war there were probably about one point five million women in, well, maybe no, maybe more than that, two million women in work. But it was invisible work. You uh-huh. didn't. There were some women who now worked in offices, but you know they were taking in laundry, they were working in factories, so it was invisible. And then suddenly you've got a few more million women, 900,000 in munitions alone, who are very visible. They're visible working as police auxiliaries in construction, burying the dead, you know, on the land. Um, Actually, 57,000 women, something like that, worked for the fledgling secret intelligence service. Oh, wow. Everything from being deployed as code breakers and agents right down to Girl Guides who delivered messages. So you had women really getting involved in, in work in a very big way. And then you had this situation where, you know, there were uh, at the end of the, first, it was actually in 1921, uh, the census revealed that there were over 2 million women for whom they were of marriageable age, for whom there would never be a husband and children because so many men were lost, a young oh, wow. men. So what do you do? You go out and you make a name for yourself in one way yeah. or another. You, <laughs> you, um, I'd say make a name for yourself. Mo- women moved into public life as never before. Uh-huh. Of course, there were many who married, many who, who floundered, you know, because it was not what they expected. But Maisie Dobbs is one of that generation that really had to, to, to get going. Let's be clear it's, it's the great age of the British woman novelist mystery novelist
1: true yeah you know true. i mean
3: there's a job you can do without any training <laughs> i know <Yeah>. that
1: <laughs> well what better way to, to make a name for yourself than to, to solve some some murders
3: yeah but exactly so anyway there you have it
1: well i, I want to know like when you Come up for air after writing about Maisie and her time and, and her place. Is it sometimes a, a little disorienting to come back to the real world when you've been so immersed in that war, in that era of the it, past?
3: It's funny you should say that because you know I, I live in California and it's ninety degrees outside. You know, <laughs> and I'm supposed to be in London. In in the 1930s and 40s, and I closed the curtains, ramp up the air conditioning so I could just jot out California. And <laughs> I can remember there was a time when once I'd i been really deep, so deep into my work, and I, I, I realized, oh, wow, it's time to have a bite to eat. And I went outside and thought, whoa, it's, it's, <laughs> it's California out there. <laughs> Actually, what I have to climb away from is, is war. That's what I have to climb away oh, from. Yeah. So you're gonna have you have to pull yourself away from the darkness, you know, and uh, and and that's when you sort of go out and think, right? I'm going out my mountain bike or something, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come
3: in, <laughs> come into my world again.
1: And along the way, you've also uh, clearly you have a lot of great stories to tell, and that it turned up in your your memoir. I'm sorry, your Edgar-nominated memoir, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> Thank uh, you. This time next year, we'll be laughing. Uh, I mean, I, I want to know though. In a way, have you really? been writing your own story all along through Maisie?
3: No, I'm not writing no. my own story. You know, <laughs> I am not like Maisie. That's why I have people around Maisie that are like Priscilla, because uh-huh. I have to prod Maisie, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it, I, I'm definitely not Maisie Dobbs. Um, I think the only thing that I have in common with Maisie Dobbs is that I have a great suspicion of, of airplanes, you know. I mean, <laughs> which is... <laughs> No, but without doubt, uh, I think like a lot of writers, there's, there's something that you hear about in the family or whatever, a family story, that you don't retell your family story, but it provides the, uh, the, the inspiration. It's, it's the, it's a little spark. It's it's a little spark. The question is, you know, is it my life? No, it isn't my life. You know, I didn't live Maisie Dobbs' life, but given the era, you know, I've been able to uh, use some inspiration from various family members, you know, I mean, and also when I was a kid, I lived in a community which was mainly elderly people, and so, and I was fascinated, you know, people only had to say, well, in my day, and I was on the edge of my seat, (laughs) what happened in your day, (laughs) you know, (laughs) tell me about it.
1: Well, uh, this has been uh, a, a wonderful uh, pitch for, for the memoir. I think uh, anyone uh, would be wise to go seek that out because obviously you have some tales to tell. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they're all uh, in that am- memoir. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's absolutely amazing. 16 uh, adventures in, in Maisie's world so far and, and more to come. So uh, we, we're yeah. looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your time.
1: All right. Well, that's it. You did it. Eric? It was that quick and easy. You, you did great oh. again.
2: Ah, thanks. <laughs> it's easy, man.
1: Well, everyone who loves A Great Mystery should check out your latest book, Murder at Wedgefield Manor. You know, this seems like something that is going to last a long time. If Jane is uh, already in your head and uh, and speaking to you, probably in your dreams, when, when, when do you start dreaming in, uh, in, in Jane's voice? <laughs>
2: I don't, I think, I think book four. I think yeah, that's, that's, that's what the schedule is.
1: Okay. The way that Book four is, that's going to be a bestseller. That's really. I know. All right. Well, you can always find the show on Twitter at writer types, and you can subscribe and get each new episode delivered right to you. I want to thank everyone for listening and thank Erica again for joining me as my, in the guest co-host seat. And uh, I certainly hope that you get it together, frankly. I mean, I think. <laughs>
2: Fair enough, but thanks for having me. It's a pleasure as always.
1: Oh, of course. Well, uh, if we've learned anything, it's that uh, Erica is it needs advice more than you, you're ready to give it. So if anyone has any advice for Erica, hit us up on Twitter and uh, let her know.
2: Perfect.